0: To begin this sermon, I want to give you an explanation as to why we seem to be repeatedly covering similar ground and dealing with trials, afflictions, hardships, so forth in our Sunday mornings, and particularly in our Sunday morning sermons. It seems we're having a hard time getting away from this particular subject. If you remember, towards the end of our sermon series of Hebrews, in chapters 12 and 13, we came across some verses that dealt with suffering, trials, hardship. Remember that for the believer? Then we... Uh, dove into Psalm 119 after Hebrews and we quickly discovered that we were in similar territory, talking about hardships, trials, suffering. And then we took a year break and uh, went to the book of James, which begins like this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so it seems like we're having a hard time getting away from this particular topic, dealing with hardship. Now we've come back to Psalm 119, and we find ourselves again interacting with the same thing. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 119, and I want to show you what I mean. It took us a year to get to verse 56 in Psalm 119. Then we took a break, and then a little while ago, I think in April, we picked it back up again in verse 57. And by the time we get to verse 61, talking about hardships again, trials again. And then 67... And then 71. And here we are again today in verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So, if you read ahead, I don't know if any of you do this, but if you read ahead in Psalm 119, there's no end in sight on this topic. So, evidently, God thinks we need this stuff. Why so much attention to trials and hardship? Or, or why have we come across so much of this in the scriptures? Maybe God is preparing us, Sun Valley, for some suffering. Or maybe he's preparing you personally for the same that you might soon be facing. Or maybe he's taking us through these verses to help you understand what you've been through. Well, let me tell you why I think Sun Valley Church has experienced all of this in what we have through Hebrews, Psalms, James, Psalms. Um, why, why I think that um, God is, is bringing this to our attention. Uh, last week I, I took out our church directory, and uh, I think almost all of you were in it. And I started thinking about each family as I read through alphabetically in relation to the trials or suffering that I knew about personally. And keep in mind that I, know, I don't know everything about everyone at Sun Valley Church. But here's what I came across in terms of a list. Um, struggling marriages, painful divorces, wayward husbands, wayward wives, wayward children... Unemployment, serious health concerns, mild health concerns, death in the family, unsaved loved ones, difficult employment circumstances, painful and damaged relationships from every angle, uh, mental illness and anguish, emotional anguish, spiritual drought, addictions of numerous kinds, financial crisis and anxiety. There's 135 entries in our um, church directory and less than five that I discover that I couldn't think of a challenge they were going through and that's because I didn't know them too well so of the 135 entries my guess is all of us <laughs> are struggling and one level or another maybe God knows this and this is why his word is full <laughs> of dealing with this subject. Uh, This is, I think, why the Bible addresses this particular thing so often. We all go through them without exception. Now we just need to determine from what we know of the Bible whether or not God is involved and whether or not he prescribes these things for our good. So how are we going to think about How are we going to navigate, not only physically but spiritually, the difficult times we all face, without exception? How are we going to think about God when we're in the middle of a storm? I think that's an important question, especially for those of us who claim to love him. Are we going to respond like Josh Harris has recently and throw away our faith and say it wasn't working? Did you hear that? Josh Harris, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. The the article title was, I Kissed Christianity Goodbye. Just just this weekend, a couple days ago. So, in our verse today, I think we're going to see some important things about our faith. About how we deal with circumstances. How our faith and how our circumstances are Intimately connected. I'm going to use the New King James version for this verse because in my little study on the matter, uh, the New King James, I think, is a little more accurate than the ESV in terms of word usage. So I have, you have your copy of the ESV, I'm certain, but listen, and I have it on the overhead to the New King James version. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Very close, but there's some nuances that I want to point out to you in these things. There are three things, in fact, that I want to show you from this verse. And the first is this, the fundamental axiom, the fundamental axiom. And it is this, the Lord's judgments are right this is a life-shifting worldview, in my opinion. To be able to say and believe and embrace that, the Lord's judgments are right, period. The dictionary says an axiom is a self-evident truth that requires no proof. For those of us who have embraced Jesus and his work on our behalf, this statement is a, fun, is a fundamental thing, And we won't argue with the self-evident fact that whatever God does is right. If, in fact, you've embraced Jesus, this is your axiom. Whatever God does is right. Can you be a Christian without believing that statement? I don't think it's possible. To be a true believer in Jesus Christ and say that God is right sometimes and wrong sometimes. I don't think that's possible. Maybe it is. I just haven't thought about it long enough. I don't know. In Abraham's crisis of faith, you remember, his nephew was in, in uh, Sodom. And God had a conversation with Adam about whether or not to destroy Sodom. This was a crisis of faith for Abraham. He was discussing literally the lives or the deaths of Thousands of people. <laughs> Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. And Abraham's conclusion in this conversation with God about the, the survival of, of thousands of people says this. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Don't you think God will do what is right, was his conclusion? Abraham knew that there were no other options for God. He knew that much. God had to be right. If God does it, it's right. If God ceases doing right, he ceases being God, at least in Abraham's view. Saying that the Lord's judgments are right may not be a fundamental axiom for a religious critic, they demand answers for difficult circumstances. They have a plethora of arguments against the goodness of God and even His existence, which they're quick to claim. But Psalm 119 was written by and to the person who believes that God exists and that His existence is good. So to us who have embraced Jesus, this is a fundamental axiom. All that God does is right. Right. And we see this in three ways. His judgments are always appropriate. His judgments are always appropriate. From our understanding of Scripture and history, God is always spot on in his dealings with us, isn't he? Can you identify anything in your knowledge where you can pinpoint God's failure? Because of his perfect wisdom and his omniscience and his omnipotence, He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. God knows exactly what discipline trials or hardships are appropriate for every situation. God's judgments are always appropriate. There is never a time in our experience that we can say that what we have had to endure, what our children have had to endure, is inappropriate. All of our trials and afflictions have their origin in some kind of sin, Whether it is our own personal sin or someone else's sin, that's where our difficulties come from. Even natural disasters. And so all of God's judgments or discipline towards us are appropriate. Secondly, this is a fundamental axiom because His judgments are proportionate. God's judgments are proportionate to our ability to survive them and benefit from them. In Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 11, God says that he will only discipline in just measure. That's really good news <laughs> for those of us who are timid and weak. God will only discipline in just measure. This not only means that his discipline and our affliction are are proportionate to what he has what he is accomplishing, rather, but is proportionate to our ability to withstand the affliction. You know, we may err in disciplining our children and sometimes mete out too much or too little discipline for the crime that our children commit, but God never does that. His judgments towards us as he disciplines, sanctifies, and refines us are exactly in proportion to what we deserve and need. We would easily argue that our discipline is light in comparison to what we deserve, wouldn't we? Finally in supporting the claim That this is a fundamental axiom for those of us who embrace Christ is that his judgments are strategic Strategic If you're doing a job around the home and need a few tools to do it you carefully choose the tool in order to accomplish the task You don't choose a hammer to kill a fly At least most of us We don't choose a q-tip to drive a nail We choose the appropriate tool, as God does, in accomplishing his tasks in our lives. Paul understood this. You remember, of any Christian in history, Paul had the most reasons to be proud, didn't he? Yeah, and so God chose a specific tool in Paul's life. To keep him from becoming proud. He says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he received. (laughs) This guy had conversations with Christ. All right, God gave me a thorn. That was was the implement. That was the strategy. A thorn was given to me in my flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. God chose exactly what he needed in Paul's life to keep him usable in his service, which he does for you and me. God strategically uses certain afflictions on you that he won't use on me because he knows us perfectly and will strategically put things to work in our lives that work. The strategic... Proportionate and appropriate nature of God's judgments towards us. Confirm the fundamental action. The Lord's judgments are right. Secondly, I want you to see in this verse the personal application. Do you see it? In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Well, the question that came to my mind as I was studying this, is God in control of what I'm going through? Is God in control of what you're going through? To the detail? Well, the psalmist seems to think so. He says, you have done it. You have done it. Who's done it? God's done it. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Is God actually behind my hardship, my challenging circumstances? There are some qualifications that we must make, of course, as they relate to the hardship we cause ourselves. But even in those, God is sovereign and weaves his purposes in, through, and around our sinful choices. Let me give you some Old Testament support for this claim. Amos 3 6 is a difficult verse. Is the trumpet blown in the city? When did trumpets blow in Old Testament cities? When they were under attack, (laughs) life and death circumstances. Is the trumpet blown in the city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45 7 I form light and create darkness God says. I make well being and create calamity. God's responsible for your well being and your calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. These verses of caused the downfall of many faithful Christians. Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mine, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times to the things yet not done, saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. If those three verses were all we had, those three passages, all we had, we would have no other options theologically. All the Lord's judgments are right. This is the personal application. And... The only reason that we have hope knowing that God is behind our calamity is because we are convinced that he's good. You wouldn't survive if you didn't think that spiritually. You would not spiritually survive if you didn't think God was good. If you spent any time thinking about it. But notice he has already established the goodness of God in verse 68. Before he gets to verse 75, he makes sure we know that God is good. He's good. And so we can survive the calamity that he brings our way. And then he says in that verse, You have afflicted me. You have done it to me in the King James, New King James. You have done it to me. (laughs) Here's where it gets personal, friends. It's it's so much easier to, to see God's hand at work in someone else's pain. Have you noticed that? We, we can easily identify what God's doing in your life, but not mine. Right? We're, we're quick to declare the mercy, grace, and goodness of God when someone else is going through pain. The challenge is when it comes knocking at my door. There's a big difference between theory and practice. So many in history have acknowledged God's right and His judgments. Because they experienced it personally. You remember King David, when his rebellious son Absalom gave him all sorts of fits. Who did David, where did David lay the responsibility for that situation? He said, God has done it to me rightly. God did it to me appropriately, proportionately, and strategically, is what David said as he was leaving Jerusalem in shame. The author of this psalm understood that the afflictions God sends our way are in fact from God's hand, God's faithful hand to accomplish his purposes. Verse 67, before I was afflicted I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So David, the author of this psalm, Nehemiah, you remember him? In the opening uh, chapter of the book of Nehemiah, he acknowledged that God was the one who was disciplining him appropriately. Unfortunately, it takes personal experience of pain to develop this theology. It rarely is learned in books. In God's grace, he grants us understanding and insight in the darkness to help us see his purposes for us, to help us see his character. That's the only place. It's in the crucible where you learn it. Going through hard times moves moves us from superficial ideas about God's faithfulness. We like to sing in the happy clappy songs, even though they're full of good theology. You know, God is good all the time, eh, 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 eh. while the person in the back dying of cancer is crying. And friends, going through hard times moves us from a superficial idea about God's faithfulness to a genuine conviction from the deepest places of our soul. The goal here is not lip service, but a genuine embrace from the heart. If we are going to spiritually survive dark times, one important truth must be embraced about God. I want you to hear this. If you're going to survive spiritually through difficulty, hardships, trials, dark times, you must embrace the following thing about God. His faithfulness towards us is dependent on and floats out of his motives in our affliction. So, what are God's motives in our affliction? Well, I began the sermon by telling you about all the passages we've read about discipline, hardship, difficulty, trials, affliction, and every one of them tells us God's motive. What is His motive? In order for God to be faithful to us, to be faithful, period. While we go through these things, um, those hardships, if He's in control, must be aimed at our good, both eternal and temporal. You've got to understand that. If you're going to survive spiritually, you've got to believe that God's motives for your challenging times, your circumstances, are for your good, both eternally. That's easier to defend, but also temporally. Our good is his motive. Our spiritual growth, our strength, our hope, our peace, our comfort, our ultimate joy is what God is after. And because of how we are designed, that doesn't come natural. It requires God's intervention. We are dependent on God to come to this place of understanding. This is why He takes us down paths we'd rather not go. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that what God starts, He finishes. He is committed to your joyful transformation. Leaving you alone won't accomplish that. So from the moment that God grants regeneration, faith, and forgiveness of sin, all the way to glorification when we see him face to face, that whole scenario is all part of his plan and everything in between. His ultimate goal is to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, to recast us in the divine image so that our joy will be full and his grace will be praised. That's the point. You don't want God to leave you alone. We need to respect one another's afflictions, friends, and not be flippant or superficial about them and saying things we don't mean like I'll pray for you. We must strive to be connected to one another, to, to go through these things together, to pray for one another, to, to lift one another up, to support one another, to be with one another, so that we'll be encouraged in this difficult walk we have to walk. Let's look at the confidence of, in God's activity that we see in this verse. Look how he starts the verse I know. What stanza is this that we're in? Yod. What do you think that verse starts with? Yod. (laughs) Remember this truth about this particular Psalm? Every stanza represents a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. Every sentence in that stanza begins with that letter. As it does here in verse 75. I know, yare. I know is the focus. I know these things to be true. This is a theology of trust that we're reading. Now what is a theology of trust follow? There's a lot that I don't understand. There's a lot I don't like. There is a lot that makes me question things, deep things. But because I believe God is good, as Scripture says, and I believe that he is love, as Scripture says, and I believe that he is all-powerful, as Scripture says, and I believe that he has demonstrated himself over and over and over again, these things must be true. I can trust him in my circumstances Look at the stanza. I know, I know both of these truths. The psalmist says that God's judgments are right and that he afflicts me in faithfulness. That's a theology of trust. God's character is my peace. God can do nothing else. He's God. His character is perfect. His love is steadfast. All these things we know about God are on display here. How could the psalmist possibly know these things so certainly? It couldn't be from his fallen human deduction. From our human perspective, we would all disagree with almost any and all affliction that comes our way. We naturally resist pain, right? We run from it. If anything, our experience persuades us to believe that God isn't doing right and that He doesn't understand my circumstances. That's what our own fallen perspective would lead us to. How could God be really truly good? How could He truly be really informed if I'm going through what I'm going through? How can that be possible? Is the fallen perspective. Our fallen human perspective will misinterpret God's activity in our lives every time, especially when it's painful. It's hard to believe and embrace the idea that the pain I'm going through or my children are going through is actually for our good. Peace, that is genuine peace. Is hard to come by for the natural heart, which is why Paul said it's a peace that passes understanding in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. The peace of God during trials is a supernatural thing that doesn't come naturally. Sorry. God uses two ways in combination to help us understand how He and our circumstances are connected, lovingly connected. First of all is his word. The person who wrote verse 75 had Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 memorized. It says this in Psalm 32 verse 4, the rock, referring to God, the rock, capital R. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. The psalmist had this verse in mind. He knew the word of God. You got to know the word, friends, if you're going to spiritually survive the trials that we all face. And then in combination, God uses our experience and observation skills as believers. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul said this Think of Paul's experience as you're listening to what he says. Think of your own experience. With Christ as I read this verse or these verses Paul says not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance we know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us God's character is our peace. So the confidence in God's activity begins with God's character. In verse 75, it talks of his steadfast love. Look at, I mean, verse 76. Let your steadfast love, what's it, what does God's steadfast love do for the psalmist? Comforts me. So, we have peace. God's character produces peace. His steadfast love produces comfort. What else do we need in affliction? What else do we need in hard times? I don't know about you, but I need hope. (laughs) Peace, comfort, and hope. Look at verse 77. Let your mercy come to me. God's mercy is our hope. God's character is our peace. God's steadfast love is our comfort, and God's mercy is our hope. Now, we listened earlier to Jonah chapter 2. Hope you were listening. He says, from the belly of the fish. I would say that's difficult times. (laughs) From the belly of the fish. He said this, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress. There's a good thing to do, right? And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and he heard my voice, speaking to God, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Well, if you read the the story of Jonah, it wasn't God, it was sailors that threw him into the sea. Jonah says, no, it was God. You cast me into the deep of the seas all your waves your waves your billows passed over me then I said I am driven away from your sight you feel like that where's God in all of this but look at the hope that we see yet I shall verse 4 again look upon your holy temple The waters closed over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Have you been there? Weeds wrapped around my head? Um, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. I was on death's door. This was so much for, for Jonah. And yet you brought me up from the pit. Oh, Lord my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. What do you think he remembered about the Lord? (laughs) His character? His steadfast love? His mercy? Exactly. Those who pay regard to vain idols look to things that don't work, self-help books, you know, blogs, whatever. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I with a voice of Thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay salvation belongs to the Lord we've been singing about this this morning haven't we yeah aren't these three things these very things the things we need in our difficult trials peace comfort hope this is what is offered to those of us who know Jesus who fear the Lord Run to him, trust him. If you're over your head, if you feel like you're running out of hope and rope, run to Jesus. We're gonna sing a song together now as we close our service. It is well with my soul. And it is well with my soul, the the author, Horatio Spafford, uh, uh, lost his four daughters in an accident. Um, they all died, and he wrote this psalm—not this psalm, this song—in uh, response to that experience. And so the words we sing, friends, are are twofold. One, it is well with my soul eternally because of what Christ has done for me in regard to my sin. But it's also well with my soul what God is taking me through. It's okay. I want you this morning to sing this song with your heart, not just with your lips, if you can. And I know that's a challenge, but I want you to try to sing this song with your heart, not just your lips. Pray with me. God, um, your character. Your steadfast love, your mercy, are what we cling to in times of darkness and pain. I know that you take us all through these things. I ask that, that our human fallen perspective would not dominate our opinions of you or of our circumstances, but that in trust, we would know that you are good. That we would develop a theology of trust in the midst of our darkness, that we would believe your word in the midst of our darkness, that we would know it. God bless us as a church, as individuals, help us to stand with one another in our dark times. Help us to be a little more thoughtful about the challenging circumstances that those face in our congregation. Bless us, Father, in the name of Christ, our Savior, who has drawn us out of the pit Amen.